Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> everybody and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I am genuinely <laughs> elated to be recording a podcast again. That's right. It feels so long. It's been a heck of a couple weeks, folks. If you weren't aware, you, you heard on the national news about the terrible events in Texas. Well, it happened in West Virginia, too. Just didn't make lots of quite as many headlines. <laughs> the, we're the forgotten yeah, frozen forgotten state. Frozen state. We had yeah. these terrible ice storms. I haven't seen anything like it for probably a decade. An inch of ice just frozen on the trees. But longer than that. Longer than a decade. It wasn't this bad, whatever, 10 years ago, whenever it was when we... Yeah, I've never seen anything. Every Every single blade of grass, leaf, tree limb... Everything encased in ice, encased in an inch of ice all around it for a week or yeah. more. I took a it, shot. We lost power for, I don't know, a week. Other people lost for, I mean, ha- are still losing, have the, still. The, yeah, there's still people in the in the more rural areas who do not have power, have not for two weeks and counting. Yeah, um, in the cold. And, it's, and it's some of them projected they won't have power back for two more weeks. Sheesh. Also, there's flooding here today. so So it's a good time, but hey, listen. I don't know what we did, but yeah. but sorry, please. If I, we're if very. I, I apologize on behalf of the state of yeah. West Virginia, if man. I, I could come up with a list of things. If I see a locust. I'm moving to Missouri. That's what I'll tell you. <laughs> Single frog. I'm out ski. Missouri. That's where Missouri? we're going. Missouri. It's just a fun state to say, Missouri. Missouri. Anyway, uh, we so because of the weirdness uh, of our lives currently. We thought it would be fun to do one of our our Q and A episodes. They're always a delight to. Uh, to, to create for you and they're fun and they lift our spirits and we hope that it can do the same for you assuming that your home was also frozen <laughs> for an extended period of time if it was i hope it's not and that you have power and clean water and that you're safe all justin, right justin do you want to read the questions i'm ready my weird now i'm going to be inhabiting the role of the listener mm-hmm. when i say my or i i'm talking about question asker does that make sense? Feel free to paraphrase the questions too. Well, okay. My <laughs> quote, my weird. That's a that's a cool thing to just throw on me. But here we go. Well, Let's I go thought you the, were good at doing that on the fly. No, I ask anyone. I can barely read the questions verbatim on my brother, my brother, and me. My weird question is about MRIs. I had an MRI the other day, and I want to know more about why it takes so long for each scan to complete. And if I were to look at them with literally no medical training, would I be able to understand them at all? Or would they just be fuzzy lines? That's from AIM. Justin, you've had an MRI before. Yeah. The M stands for miserable. 
No, but I would say you are not alone in that. MRI stands for miserable. Really, it <laughs> sucks. MRIs. Magnetic resonance imaging is actually what it stands for. It's a, um, I know it's a modern medical miracle, but getting one done is the bits. They, they, I have never heard anyone say like, I really enjoyed that MRI. Usually if I'm going to have somebody uh, have a CAT scan performed, one of the first things I say is, it's not the MRI. It's a CAT scan. They're much faster. <laughs> Don't worry. Because people never want another MRI if they've had one. You have to lie completely still in a terrible tube, and then they blaze you with loud noises. And it it's is the pits. It is very loud, and it's kind of like a do 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 sound. It's absolutely uh-huh. <laughs> the worst. Wow, I, this is just what I wanted to think about. Thank you, Sydney. Thanks Sorry, for and me. it is. And now there are there are. If you've ever seen like you can Google a picture, but they're like a big donut shaped thing that you got to go in. They do have open MRIs, which are more like C shaped. Mm-hmm. which are not quite as intense, but you won't find those everywhere. Um, Probably expensive. But they're still right? loud. Expensive. Yeah. And they're still loud and long. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if wh- whatever you're at. friction on. Still- <laughs> no. <laughs> Why do they take so long? In part, it's because of how many pictures they're usually taking. We get MRIs when That's we need di- to get. Can I just say, Aim, all, all love to you. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, because I, I feel the exact same way, but isn't that a distinctly like human response, like this magnetic scan of my brain is taking forever. <laughs> I can't believe it's taking so long t- for the incredible miracle of it, magnetically scanning my brain tissue to complete. It is It is hard for me. I understand so much. And you can just tell like the sciences I loved. I, I love biology. I, you know, I can get down with chemistry. Physics is so hard for me. It's just the one that eludes me. Um, and I'm always fascinated by people who are good at physics because it's the one of the three big hard sciences that I had to take a lot of that, oof. Tell me more about big hard sciences. <laughs> so MRIs, they're big magnets, right? Why don't people call them Murrays? I don't know. Nobody calls them that. Oh, I should. I don't know. Right. Some people just call them MRs. Okay. MR, uh, Murrays is good. Let's but they're go, already we'll just MRI. Anyway. We'll get Murray started. You can work on that. Um, so it produces a magnetic field. And it makes all of the protons in your body, in the various fluids and tissues and whatever, all throughout your body, it changes their rotational axis to sort of align with the field. And then there is a radio frequency current that is run through the patient. <laughs> when Sydney, it's so rare on this show, but when Sydney talks about something she does not completely understand, <laughs> she looks at me with this look like I'm going to be like, ah, 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 you didn't quite get it right. <laughs> It's very rare on some of those, but it does happen occasionally. It's very good. So the the protons are stimulated by this current. Mm -hmm. They rotate differently. They get, like, really excited. And then it's turned off, and they go back to the way they were. Okay? Well, I'm not trying to put it exactly like that. That's how it works. That's how it works. And the time that it it takes for them to realign with the magnetic field is different depending on where they are Uh in the body, like what kind of tissue is there. Uh So it'll make every, every, all these different tissues light up differently. Okay. Which is how it produces the image. Um, And you can use like a contrast material, which you've, you you know, we've, we inject a dye of sorts, gadolinium. We inject it into you because that will make the differences between certain tissues even greater. Okay. Okay. Um, on the picture. And it's interesting. You can look up pictures of MRIs. There's lots of them online. And it you would know what you were looking at in the sense that, like, that's inside a human body. <laughs> um, and even if you have no medical training, if you've just seen, like, pictures of, like, a brain or 
I mean, to some extent, like the major organs, you probably would be vaguely aware, like, oh, I kind of know what that is. You would know you're looking inside a human body, right? If you've ever seen a diagram of the human body. Now, what you probably wouldn't know without medical training is like, is that what it's supposed to look like? I mean, even as somebody with a lot of medical training, I am not a radiologist. There are a lot of subtle things on this kind of image that I won't immediately be able to tell. I can tell more than someone with no training, of course. But like you could probably see major issues even without medical training. Again, to some extent, just because things look asymmetrical or off, but you wouldn't know exactly what they were. They take so long because they are taking incredibly detailed pictures and sometimes thousands of pictures. I mean, really, thousands of pictures that giant magnet is taking of you when you're laying in it, which is why it takes a long time. All right. Well, we have a lot of powerful, fantastic names on this week's Q&A scene, mm-hmm. I got to say. How common is Alice in Wonderland syndrome and other sleep-related disorders? I had this a lot as a kid. That's from Topper. I-, I wanted to mention this briefly because we've had this request a lot as an episode topic, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. And it's tough because sometimes I just don't know how I'm going to fill a whole episode. Like something's really interesting, but mm-hmm. I feel it's more like an anecdote and I don't know how to fill a whole episode with it. And this is one of those. So Alice in Wonderland syndrome is what we call... Um, sensation, it can be brought on by different things. It can be its own thing. It can be brought on by like certain forms of epilepsy, like temporal lobe epilepsy. It can be brought on by infections with some viruses like Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, It's more common in kids. And it's this sensation of things either sort of like getting really small or getting really large, like looking like they're really far away, like you're looking through a telescope or a microscope if they're really small. It, it's things changing and your, and your relation, like the, your size in relation to things changing. Wow. It's that um, perception becomes altered, which okay. is where the name comes from, right? Because right. Alice – ate the stuff and shrank and drank the stuff Alice and got big stu- or whatever. Yeah. I always forget. Did she Come eat it and, and get eat big? The stuff <laughs> and then you will shrink, eat other stuff, and then you'll get big. Uh, what I thought was interesting is that if you read the literature on it, we still don't understand. Alice understand. Wonderland. <laughs> <You> <laughs> no, no on, uh, on the syndrome, we still don't understand it very well because what everybody will say is extremely rare. It's, it's very rare. It's very rare, very uncommon. But then there was this one study in Japan that estimated that like 6% of boys and 7% of girls experience this at some point or another when they're kids, like young children. So kids are just Which would like, be like tripping super out common. all the time. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, comparatively, like if something happens in 7% of the population, that's not rare. No. No. So, you know, maybe the the sensation of that, this perception and whatever, the, re- the there are myriad reasons for it, is more common. The syndrome itself, especially that persists into adulthood and like is a chronic condition, that mm. is rare, okay. I will say. That's very rare. Got it. Um. I have a partial heterochromia iridium. My right eye is blue. My left half is blue and half brown. Left oh, my is left half is half blue and half brown. Got it. Why does this happen? How rare is it? How rare is it to uh, only be half of one eye? That's from Johnny Ace. See, why don't I tell you cool names this week? You know what's interesting? I was reading about heterochromia. Specifically, heterochromia can be of any tissues, like different colors of any tissues. And then if you add the iridium, you mean eye. And it's, uh, I guess, a lot more common in certain domestic animals, like particularly like Siberian huskies. Are, it's very common that they'll have like one 
light eye, one dark eye. Like Are you one blue, suggesting one brown. that this listener is a Siberian husky? No, I that just loves podcasts. When you, when you start googling this term and trying to find out things like how frequent is this, you get a lot of information about animals. Okay, that aren't human animals, and so like, and it's it's associated in in like other animals, not humans, with like a lack of genetic diversity. Mm. Uh, in humans, it's not. I want to make that very clear. Johnny Ace. I'm not. Take a sigh real, a deep yeah, sigh real. Well, I'm not. It is not. Sydney's not dragging humans. you. No. Uh, that we're not entirely certain why. We know that there is a hereditary form that you just inherit. It's autosomal dominant. You just inherit it from your parents. Um, we know that melanin can be related. Like it could be an area where there just isn't pigment. There isn't melanin. And so that's why an eye would look lighter. But it's actually pretty rare. It affects fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. Oh, look at you. Yeah, it's a very rare condition. Um, like I said, there are just spontaneous causes, but it's usually a hereditary thing, just something you inherited. And there is, Justin, I thought this was interesting. There's something central heterochromia, okay. which is when you have like little spikes of a different color in the middle of your eye oh, okay. and then another color behind it, mm-hmm. which I mention yeah. because you have that. Whoa. And it's very rare. And we've never put a name to incredible it. Incredible and beautiful. They're so yeah. rare and beautiful. There's no name for it. But <laughs> incredible. But these um, partial heterochromias, where you would just have like a segment of an eye that was one color, and then the rest of it was a different or something like you described. That that's with this condition not uncommon in of itself. You know what I mean? Like that tends to run with heterochromia can have a varied presentation, but just the the concept itself is very rare. Very rare. Uh, I know we need to take a break, but I want to get in this quick one from Jude. Does cutting your hair really make it grow faster? No. Oh. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, like, you can do it for stylish purposes if you if you see fit, but no. Okay. My sister and I were chatting recently because we had been on the same medication, but in different countries. She was on it in the U.S. I was in Canada. We noticed something a bit strange. Her pills are regular, round, pill-shaped, but mine were triangular. Then I assessed the contents of my medicine cabinet and realized that I've have had pills that are round, oval, square, and triangular. I even had one medication where the pill was two circles together, like a weird figure eight shape with a line down the middle as if it were like a break line cue. It got me wondering, is there a specific reason that different pills are shaped differently? Does that change by country? Uh, And that's from Grace. Um, I give me my guess. Yeah, I was going to say, you may know this. My guess would be that it's a, um, a way to distinguish like brands versus generics. That's my guess. It yes, it is about generics. Um, when you have the because brand it's name, right? Like it's it's. I wonder if that's like part of the copyright or patent. Oh, I'm certain that is. And then the other part of it is just like if you have different companies that are producing. It's like so. Like when a new pharmaceutical is introduced, it's usually uh, on brand at first. Like it's a branded um, medication that cannot be reproduced generically. Right. They have a patent on it. You can't, nobody else can make it. Okay. And so it has a distinctive look. And so you get like taglines like the little purple pill. Okay. Right. right. That makes sense. Um, because then you know exactly what, it, then you know you're or getting Viagra. a real. Like how big of a deal the blueness mm-hmm. of Viagra is. You know what you're getting when you look at it. And that's part of the brand. Once it goes off patent and other companies can start producing it, which is great for everybody who needs to take it because then it gets way cheaper. It doesn't matter, right? Like what you're taking is no longer called whatever the brand name is. So who cares what it looks like? So whatever is the cheapest 
for that particular generic pharmaceutical company to produce is what they're going to do. So you'll see a ton of variety and it can vary like your pharmacy could get a contract with a different generic supplier from month to month. I mean, it it usually isn't that variable, but yeah, so the pills you fill could look different. Now I would always suggest if, if the pill that you have been on chronically looks, you know, very different, it never hurts to say, hey, did this, is, is this, there, is this still, yeah. it never hurts to ask. And, and it's not necessary. I mean, certainly from country to country, it can vary, but it can vary from state to state, from city to city, pharmacy to pharmacy. The same medication can look very different all over the world. Hmm. Just different generic. Let's say, uh, you think a break now? Let's take a break. Yeah, let's take, take a break. Okay. Uh, we will be right back. But first, a quick trip to the billing department. Let's go. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, 
you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Maximum Fun is a network by and for cool, popular people. But did you know it also has an offering designed to appeal to nerds? A show for nerds? On Maximum Fun? The devil, you say? It's true. It's called The Greatest Generation, and they review episodes of a television program for nerds called Star Trek. They've reviewed TNG, DS9, and are now reviewing Voyager. Hey, Star Trek. My daughter enjoys that program. Well, if she enjoys that, and she enjoys humor of the flatulent variety, might I recommend she subscribe to The Greatest Generation? Hey, are you calling my kid a nerd? Why, I oughta... Well, gotta go! Become a friend of DeSoto by subscribing to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org today! I've had some issues with super enlarged tonsils in my life and don't understand why they do that. I mean... I understand their purpose of protecting your throat from bacteria from what I know, but why do they have to enlarge so much when swollen? Why do they not just give you a scratchy throat slash voice and that's it? That's from Jesse. Uh, it has to do with what tonsils are made of. Tonsils are, are like, uh, they're like lymphatic material. They're like lymph nodes. And when you have an infection, your lymph nodes swell, right? Because they are taking in the invader so to speak, whatever the bacterial or viral or whatever invader it is, and creating a an immune response to it. Um, and so in that process, lymph tissue, immune tissue, whatever, will swell because it's getting more blood flow. That's what's happening. More blood flow goes to the area. It gets engorged. It swells. It's part of the immune response. This is why your tonsils swell. Now, of course, if you have chronic infection or inflammation or whatever that's causing your tonsils to swell for a very long time, then it becomes no longer productive, right? Because exactly like you said, then it makes it hard to swallow or breathe or talk or whatever, which is why we take them out when those kinds of situations occur. But that's, it's responding just like your lymph nodes do. All right. Hello. Recently, I had a birth control implant put in my arm and I know my uterus has kind of been cleaning itself out for a few months, but why is the stuff brown and not red? I've been on my period for three months now, but it hasn't been blood colored. It's more like a ruddy brown, almost black. What makes it turn color like that? When will it end? Thanks for a very good show. It always serves a great distraction at work. That's from Periodically Concerned in Oregon. So the first part of the question is, and this is a good thing to note for anyone who has periods, it is normal for the blood uh, and, and the substance that is released to look red, like you would expect blood to. It can look pink if there's some mixture of like cervical fluid and stuff in there too. It can look brown and it can look black like older blood that has been exposed to oxygen. That's what it tends to look like. And especially if it's older blood where the water has started to evaporate from it. And so it's more concentrated then that pigment looks more concentrated. So it's old Old blood that's been exposed to oxygen starts to get a brown or black appearance. If there is something that looks grayish or greenish, that is usually something you should get checked out. But red, brown, black, pink, these are all colors that blood can be, and that's normal. And as to to how long, 
it's so variable from person to person. Everyone's experience with a birth control, whether it's like an implantable device or an IUD or whatever it is, is going to be a little different. The goal would be eventually to thin out that uterine lining so much that you stop having periods. That's nice. That is what we hope happens a lot of the time because that's easier, right? But it doesn't always. So it's kind of unpredictable. Just keep checking in with your doctor if you're concerned about it. Okay. Can you still see with an eye that has been popped out of its socket? From Caleb. So I had to think about this because this isn't like something we do. Not routinely, I wouldn't. (laughs) No. It just made me think of that one awful movie. That one terrible. When I used to be able to watch horror movies that were like the really disturbing ones. Hostile. Hostile. That happens. Okay. Oh, Oh, can't go there anymore. I'm too old for that stuff. Um, I think as long as the optic nerve is intact, which is the thing that I, in your mind, if you're picturing this, you probably are picturing it hanging by something. Yeah. That's what it's hanging by, the optic nerve. As long as that's still intact and not damaged, I, yeah. You would probably have, it would probably mess you up though because mm-hmm. the image would be so different, right? Mm-hmm. We're used to, our eyes are lined up to produce three-dimensional images by giving us two slightly different versions of reality in front of us, right? Without that alignment, you would probably get two completely different, your, I mean. Your brain would have a lot of trouble processing that. Yeah. So, so then, So then you get this like tree falls down in the forest kind of thing. Like the eye is seen, but is the brain able to process the information that it's seen? I don't know. I, I honestly don't. I mean, theoretically it could, but yeah, I don't know how it would reconcile the difference between the two images. Yeah, I don't know. That, that would be, be difficult. That would be tough. Um, it'd probably make you feel pretty sick. Yeah, you'd probably get instantly very And you nauseous. couldn't control, I mean, like the eye would just be where it was because the muscles that control your eye, like moving from side to side and all that are in the socket there. And so without all those teeny little muscles, it would just be there. Probably kind of like being cross-eyed, but like in like triple, like quadruple that. I mean, it would suck. It would suck. It would not be fun. Don't do Here's the official Sawbones recommendation. Don't do it. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, uh, another eye question here. I have floaters in my eyes a lot, and I've heard different uh, explanations for what they are. Dust specks, cholesterol, water, even parasites. I really hope it's not the last one. So what actually are they, and why do they happen? It's from Amanda. So generally speaking... Man, I always hate saying stuff like this. Like, yes, there are there is a parasite that you can get in your eye that you can see. That is incredibly rare and sleep that is well. not sleep well. <laughs> that is not rare. that sleep is well. that is not the cause of the vast majority of eye floaters as we know them to be as as most of us experience. Those are just changes in the the vitreous humor, the the stuff, the jelly-like stuff that's inside your eyeball. Um, it can become more liquid okay. over time, little fibers can kind of clump and cast shadows, okay. and those shadows are what you are experiencing as floaters. They're normal. Everybody gets them. That's all they are. That that Having a floater in and of itself is not necessarily something to be concerned about. If you're having them constantly, if they're worsening, if they're affecting your vision. If it's a parasite. <laughs> if anything else is going on, you should get them checked out. But, like, having a floater is not necessarily anything to be concerned about. Uh, most days, the first time I eat something in the morning, I will sneeze after the first mouthful. Why is this? That's from Liam. We do you remember we've talked about this sort of before on the on the show, the snatiation. 
Snatiation. Snatiation yeah. reflex? No. It's a combination of sneeze and satiation. Wow. Because you eat. This is a known reflex. Okay. Some people sneeze when they eat. We don't know why it happens. It seems to be genetic. You see, you might ask if anybody else in your family does this, um, but it is a known thing. Some people, uh, their nose runs when they eat. Okay. Every time they eat, they get rhinitis. They get a runny nose. Yeah. I know. They're, they're a weird. Humans were miracles. Weird nerve. It's nerves. It's weird stuff. Some sort of weird nerve reflex that happens when the stomach starts to get full of food and then you sneeze. I don't know. It's a weird thing. But ask you if anybody in your family has it because we think it's genetic. Here's a weird one. I'm. That's not me. <laughs> this is the text of the email. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no, editorializing. The, 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 the listener <laughs> put that in there. The, the listener wrote these words. Here's a weird one. I'm non-binary, uh, and I realized this around 16 or 17. I went through, quote, female puberty before this, but over the next few years after realizing, I noticed a lot more hair on my body growing in places uh, assigned female at birth, people wouldn't get chest, neck, jawline, happy trail, etc. Without taking hormone treatment or similar hair stimulating treatments, is this normal for that age slash gender group? Uh, I'm really glad, and that's from Kit. Thank you, Kit. I'm I'm really glad that you asked this question because first of all, I should say that like it's to to answer specifically what is happening in your human body on a podcast, obviously I I wouldn't try to do, right? Because it for for something very specific like that, you know, we don't this is why I don't diagnose on a podcast. You don't want to do that. That's not proper medicine. Um I think though that it brings up an important point, which is first of all, hair distribution is different in everybody. And it is related Yes, to an extent, to various hormones, estrogen and testosterone and all the different things. Yes, for sure. And we all have different mixes of that in our bodies, which is why, like, to, like, say a certain hair pattern is exclusive to one gender or another really isn't uh, very accurate, right? Right. Um, some of us, like, I am a cis female and I am very hairy, <laughs> And that is just, I, do I have more testosterone? Maybe, maybe that's why. I don't know, never had it checked. And that certainly could be part of it. But I think it just speaks to a really important point that that the email brings up, which is gender is so much more complicated than what I think some people would like to reduce it to, which is chromosomes. The idea that you can just, call someone and I think like a lot of you know where I'm going with this but the idea that you could call someone that first of all that there are two genders and that secondly that those genders are easily defined by XXXY is a completely flawed concept scientifically um, and that's not just uh, what I think some might write off as like being um, politically correct or woke the science the science says that no there aren't two genders and we can't define them by chromosomes alone, no. We can't define them by hormones alone because, as you've pointed out, we all have varying levels of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone and all the different hormones that make us grow breasts or not or grow hair different places or not or have a penis or have a vagina. All of those things are different in different people, and that has nothing to do with the gender that they present as and identify as. 
and tell you that they are, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what what it what all this speaks to is that you can't define gender by chromosomes, cells, receptors, hormones. You define gender by saying what gender do you identify as and asking a person and then they tell you. If you started looking at the molecular level, whether you're talking about hormones in this question or chromosomes, there are a lot more than two, you know, genders is is just the simple case. But I think that's a it's a good point to make that when people say there that there's not just two genders, male and female, and you can't just assign them based on genitalia or chromosomes, they're saying that because they know the science. And the science is that there aren't just two genders and chromosomes and genitalia do not define gender. I'm not a huge fan of medical sitcoms or dramas with a few exceptions, mainly Scrubs and MASH. Uh, I know Scrubs is a lot more accurate than most medical TV, but one question that's always struck with me is about video games. Turk, the searcher on the show, does a lot of things that are presented as silly or superstitious to improve his skill. During one episode, he begins to play Xbox addictively, claiming that studies show that surgeons who play a great deal of video games develop better fine motor skills. This always seems suspect to me in terms of truth, but like the kind of thing that people would actually believe apocryphally. Is it true? That's from Luke. Uh, so Luke, I didn't I didn't know. I've heard people say this. I don't know if it's a common belief. I don't want to say I know that it's a common belief among surgeons because I don't know. I haven't I haven't ever polled any surgeons. But I've heard people say this. So I looked to see has anybody done a study? I found a study from 2007 called The Impact of Video Games on Training Surgeons in the 21st Century. Seems like a good study to go to if you want to uh, answer this question. And they were exactly looking for this. Now, they were specifically looking at laparoscopic surgery when we use a camera, like a minimally invasive with a camera and just a couple other points of insertion, you know, instead of like a big incision where we open you up, that's an open surgery. A laparoscopic surgery, would video games help you with that specifically? Because what you're doing with a laparoscopic procedure is you're looking at a screen, right? You're not looking inside the human body. You're not looking down at the patient. And mm-hmm. after after you've put all the tools in, you're mainly looking at the screen as you're operating the trocar and the, mm-hmm. whatever else you're using, right? Because um, the camera's showing you things. So the question is, would video games make you better at that? Now, this was a, a small study. There were only, I think, 33 residents in it. But their conclusion is that um, playing video games did make people better there it is uh that is the that again this is a very small study and i'm not gonna say that this is this is for these 33 surgeons uh but they said that um yeah we think maybe maybe it is it does correlate with laparoscopic surgical skills now that Um, now it is important to say to note though that's only if they're elite if they are (laughs) kind of a noob it probably isn't helping them at all they need to get their kd up and they need to get some sick skills and, uh, you know, then then maybe they, they can see about it. I would want uh, it reproduced a lot in a larger study population. I volunteer and all that, as tribute. Uh, before, before I would buy it. Um, but I do think, of course, hand-eye coordination is an important part of anything you do with your hands, right? We, and especially if you're having to look at a screen, like you're doing what – you're doing a procedure where you can't necessarily see directly with your eyes because it's not an open procedure. I could see – that technology, like being familiar with it. Anyway, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on just this one study, but it's out there. It's interesting. So would you say that video games done did it again? I you would say that. Would, would but would you say it? Would you say you like What's video games? What's the next question? Oh, it's about vaping. Okay. 
are vitamin supplement vapes good or bad for you? Do they even work? Like, can the body absorb vitamins through inhalation? Uh, so I looked into this because I, did, I didn't know there were vitamin vapes, by the way. Did makes, you know that? Makes sense. I feel like you should have known that. That tracks. I didn't know there were vitamin vapes. It does vapes. seem like that would be part of my milieu, but no, I was not aware. <laughs> there were some old studies in like the 50s, 60s back then that looked at um, nebulized B12 putting vitamin B12 into like, you know, the nebulizer machines, yeah. like people who get treatments for asthma, like albuterol mm-hmm. and stuff, um, that if you inhaled B12 that way, was it effective? And there were some studies that said you could like actually get B12 into your body through inhalation, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of all the other vitamins, I mean, the answer is like, I don't know. Like we don't typically, nobody's done those studies to prove that. Like you can put them in a vape and sell them and you don't have to do a study to say it works, right? Mm -hmm. So they're just doing that. And so, and a lot of them will cite those B12 studies to be like, well, no, we know that you can inhale B12. So why couldn't you inhale another vitamin? That sort of makes sense. Um, Sort of. That's not really enough. Uh, But the other thing is those were nebulized. Those were like um, cooled droplets that were being nebulized into the lungs, not like dripped over a heated coil and then inhaled. Okay. Right. So it's a very different mechanism. So I don't think it's a, I don't think you can just say one to one. Yeah. So I have They weren't cranking up a bunch of ohms and getting some real chunky cotton full of 12. <laughs> it was like cooled. I have no like idea. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I have no, so I have no idea if you could even get a vitamin in that way. And if you could, what it would do and how much would be penetrating. And also, do you even if need it's harmful. Vi- and also, do you even need the vitamin to start with? <laughs> is the other, it, <laughs> well, that's the other, the other thing, like, right? right? Most of us don't need vitamins. So do you even need it? And is it harmful? We don't know. Um, I would not, if you think you need a vitamin supplement, I would talk to your provider about that. And then I would take it the good old fashioned way. (laughs) If you do need it, (laughs) you know, in a pill or whatever the, your, you know, your doc suggests, but not, not vape, not vape it. When I was pregnant, the skin on my stomach became numb. Everyone told me I would get sensation back, but it's been two years and I still can only feel pressure on my stomach. Will I ever get sensation back? Could it be because I needed a C-section? My daughter and I love your show. That's from Long Lost Nerves in Louisville. Um, You know, it's interesting. So I I wanted to, I don't know that it is necessarily common to lose sensation from pregnancy itself. Like the tissue is being stretched, but it's normally not something that damages nerves, you know, because everything's growing, right? Everything's growing to accommodate. So like that doesn't, but C-sections definitely do. And any big incision like that. So not just C-sections, but if you, but for me, that's the only surgery I've had. So it's the only reference point I have. But if you have a, a, a large incision somewhere and you touch it, it might still, even if it's been years and years ago, still feel different, numb or less of a sensation or just different from the rest of your tissue. My, because I have two C-section scars because I couldn't go in through the first one. Got to get, got to get a big old equal sign there. Both of them feel somewhat numb to this day, you know, Yeah. six and three years ago. So it is, yeah, after nerves have been severed in like a, a surgical procedure, it is not uncommon for that tissue to feel, di- and you might completely regain sensation. That's not everybody, but for some people, it always feels a little different. When my nephew was about six months old, he developed a fever and was taken to see the doctor who told his parents he had sixth disease. In their anxiety, they didn't ask for any details of what that actually is. Spoiler, it cleared up uh, in a few days, and he was fine and is fine. Uh, what is sixth 
disease. Why is it called that? And are there other diseases named after numbers like this? That's from Martha. Yes, there are. It's a great question. There are a list of common infants of childhood, shouldn't just say infant, common childhood skin rashes that we came up with a long time ago and numbered. And we just numbered them. And there you go. I, you know, what's funny. I was taught in medical school. This is what my professor told me, that we numbered them this way because they are the order they're most likely to happen. Hmm. I do not think that is true. And I don't think that was accurate. At least I haven't found anybody else say that. I think it was just the numbers that they were given, the yeah. order that they were added in. Um, so first disease is measles. It, nobody calls it that anymore. I mean, if you said I have first disease, first I'd say, why didn't you get vaccinated? And secondly, like, do you mean measles? Second disease is scarlet fever. Third disease is rubella. Uh, fourth disease is, that's actually debated, like, it was this even a real entity? It might be something called staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, or it might have been a kind of a collection of different rashes that were grouped under the name fourth disease. Fifth disease is the only one I think that's kind of perpetuated. Like, you'll hear people say, I, my kid got diagnosed with fifth disease which is called erythema infectiosum. It's called by, caused by a parvovirus. It's pretty, most of these are pretty, um, like fifth disease and sixth disease, which is also called roseola or the three-day fever. That, those are pretty benign, common okay. infections that kids get, viral rashes, and then they go away. Usually fifth and sixth disease, not necessarily a huge deal. Fifth disease is notable because kids will get what they call a slap cheek appearance. Their their cheeks will look very, very red. Mm. Um, yeah, we numbered them that way, and that's perpetuated. Some people tried to get, uh, for Kawasaki, when it was first named and discovered, tried to get seventh disease going for it. No, no dice? Didn't feel like it stuck. And not, honestly, none of these have ever stuck except fifth disease. You will still hear that called fifth disease. Well, apparently sixth disease, too, at least maybe in the I UK. I guess, yeah. Ro roseola is what I would have, what, what I usually say. If I suspect roseola, and it's just a clinical diagnosis, I would just say roseola. Once, while getting a flu shot, the pharmacist used an alcohol wipe with something numbing in it, and I barely felt the injection. A separate time, I was given a subcutaneous flu shot, and it was so painless, I was legitimately surprised when the nurse told me he was done. Why isn't this more common? I don't mind the minor discomfort of vaccines, but I imagine it would make things easier for kids or for people who are afraid of needles or hesitant to get vaccinated because of the pain of the injection. That's from Lenny. It's a good question. I would say, because there are there are a couple different things we can use. Sometimes it's just like a cold spray, just to like numb. Like there's a cold thing you can put mm -hmm. on there to numb the area. There is like a topical Imla cream that you can put on the area to like numb just the very, very surface of the skin. Um, both of those things can like lessen the pain related to an injection or something. And you'll see it if you've ever had something like a joint injection. Usually use that cold spray yeah. on the outside of the skin before they- used they... it on me when I got my, um, uh, what was it, in my wrists? Your carpal tunnel carpal injection. Tunnel, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that can that can help with the, the surface pain. I would say that we don't use it as often for very mundane logistical reasons. Um, shots tend to not hurt very much. For the most part, right? Like just mm -hmm. your standard intramuscular like flu shot injection. Um, they tend to not hurt very much and they we're trying to do them quickly. And so I think logistically the idea is that you don't really need it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something you, sh you could ask about for sure. If you're someone who um, is especially, you know, kind of nervous about needles and or if you have somebody in your family or a kid, it is certainly something you can ask about. I don't not... In the U.S., everything's about cost, and so, like, yeah. will every office have it? 
I don't know, maybe. Um, but you could certainly use it to lessen the pain. I, but I would say that that's the, it's a very mundane reason. They just think, well, shots, shots don't usually bother people too much, so we won't bother with it. But if you ask about it um, ahead of time, a lot of offices and places will have it. And I think it's certainly worth something we could maybe do a better job of offering, especially for like kids or people who are very um, anxious about injections. One last question. And I know why you put this on here. Can you use super glue to seal your wounds? Can you or should you is really the way. Did Sydney's dad or should Sydney's dad? <laughs> that is why I added this on here. Uh, my dad, uh, it was his elbow, right? This is before you were a physician, right? No. I, well, I was in training. I don't know if I was done with training or in training somewhere in my path. Far enough um, long you knew it was a bad idea. Yeah, I knew it was a bad idea. He he called and asked me, can you use super glue? He had split his elbow open on something. Basketball, probably. Probably basketball. And he asked, could he uh, just use super glue to glue it back together? And I said, uh, I wouldn't do that. And he said, well, what if I did? <laughs> <laughs> I should, I should, uh, I've been messing around with tenses here. Um. <laughs> and here's the thing. The ingredients in super glue, some... And in some surgical glues we use, there might be some crossover, but here's a very, very important difference. Whether we use, if you come to a hospital or a, a doctor's office or whatever, you know, some sort of medical facility, and you have an open wound that needs to be stitched or stapled or surgical glued or whatever back together, steri-stripped, whatever we decide to use, whatever's appropriate, we are doing that using sterile technique meaning we are taking every available precaution to ensure that we don't introduce germs, bacteria, into the wound while we're fixing it. Because if we do and it gets infected, it's going to have to be opened back up and it's going to be a whole thing and you're not going to like it. Super glue out of your kitchen stuff drawer, if you're like us, at home is not sterile. And you probably don't have sterile gloves at home and you probably don't have sterile surfaces and probably you're just like sort of glopping it on there mm -hmm. without having cleaned it and sterilized the area and the glue and everything else appropriately. So I would not recommend this. It might hold something together, but the consequences may be that you get a pretty bad infection and then everything is way worse. So if you really have something that you think needs glued together then it needs evaluated by somebody who can actually do that under under sterile procedure. Well, folks, I hope that these uh, answers have been helpful to you in your specific scenarios. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I do like, I love, the more we ask for these questions, the more I get questions that are extremely, like, I love to hear your your stories because I get very specific uh, stories from, from listeners who are curious about things. And uh, I can't answer all the questions. We just don't have enough time to do that. But I do I do try to read every single one that I can. And I do enjoy and appreciate everybody who, who sends things in. Uh, so thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate you. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you want more, we got a book. It's called The Sawbones Book. It's now out in paperback. Get it wherever fine books are sold. Um, and uh, that's going to do it for us for this week. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.